It's hard for anyone not to get caught up in a good tale of lost treasure. Some pirate, a thief, a soldier, or even an organization that was known to have possessed some form of a mass treasure. Then something happens. The law is closing in on them, or it's the middle of the war, and there is a fear of the other side acquiring such a treasure. This triggers a person or the persons to hide the treasure to protect it at all costs, and then they get killed or the location gets lost over time. The United States are riddled with such tales from Jesse James and pirate booty to revolutionary and even Civil War gold, just setting somewhere buried in a cave and long forgotten, just waiting to be discovered once again to make the finders millionaires. It's a story ripped out of the silver screen in the likeness of movies like National Treasure. But it's not all fabled fantasy of dreams. Some of these stories have already been proven and found. Join us tonight as we once again embark on a journey, this time for lost treasure, on our little podcast called Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded we become, fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So when we started talking about this, certain stories immediately came to mind for me. And, and the first one that I jumped right on, I knew I was going to do, was The Lost Dutchman's Mine. And after doing some research on it, that is a an involved story. There's a lot going on with that. Mm-hmm. And apparently, still going on, people still look for it today. And, and it doesn't always end well for those treasure seekers. I've got a list of, of, of encounters that, that turned bad. A lot of them just vanish. The Lost Dutchman's Mine was allegedly named for the German immigrant Jacob Voltz. Now you say Lost Dutchman and German. Well, back at that time frame, the 1800s, they tended to use the slang term Dutchman for a German immigrant because of the German currency Deutschmark. Okay. So that was something I was immediately, like, that was one of those things I had to figure out uh, immediately, like, right didn't away. Quite add up, yeah. Why they call it the Lost Dutchman's Mine if it's named for a German immigrant? Now, uh, Jacob was said to have discovered the mine in the 1800s and kept its location a secret. And according to this legend, it is a rich gold mine hidden somewhere in the southwestern United States, generally believed to be somewhere in the Superstition Mountains near Apache Junction, which is east of Phoenix, Arizona. Now, the Superstition Mountains are a mountain chain down there, and they are anchored by Superstition Mountain. So when I reference Superstition Mountain singular, it is like the the sort of the first peak of the Superstition Mountains. And obviously. The mountain or mountains get their name from many superstitions. Yeah. That that whole area has got a lot oh, going yeah, there, on. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of stories for that, that that could be part of other episodes. Episodes, yes. So the Superstition Mountain is a large mountain that's a popular destination in the area. There's also more than one supposedly lost Dutchman's mine. There's another one that's supposed to be in Colorado, one in California, and at least two others that are referred to in in stories in Arizona. So there's a lot of... A lot of confusion here on this story, but the main story seems to be this mine found by Jacob Vaults. 
So the earliest tale of the Lost Dutchman's Mine in Arizona is actually from near Wickenburg, which is about 110 miles northwest of the Superstition Mountains, with the story saying that a German man was discovered dead near the town in the 1870s alongside saddlebags filled with gold and no idea where he had found them. But most of the stories do seem to roll into the story of Jacob Valtz's lost mine, which is the one that's in the Superstition Mountains. Now, there are many stories about how to find the mine, how the mine was found, where to go. Yearly, people go out and search for it. According to one estimate, some 9,000 people a year make some attempt at locating the Lost Dutchman's Mine. Some have died in pursuit of the mine, and, and I'll talk about that later. But the story really is kind of a lot of stories combined. So you have a story of some lost Apache gold, uh, that of Dr. Thorne's mine, and, and the Lost Dutchman, and they all kind of weave together. But it starts with members of the Apache tribe allegedly discovering a very rich gold mine somewhere in the Superstition Mountains. It starts with these native peoples. And most stories involve the family of a man called Miguel Peralta eventually discovering the mine and finding gold there, only to be massacred by the Apaches around 1850 in the supposed Peralta Massacre. Now, years later, the Dr. Thorne I mentioned earlier, he's treating a wounded Apache chieftain and is rewarded for his aid with a trip to this gold mine. Now, he's blindfolded and he's taken there by a difficult-to-follow, difficult-to-remember route. And while he's there, the Apaches allow him to take as much gold as he can carry before they again blindfold him and escort him back to where they'd come that, from. That's a pretty good reward. Now, the doctor was unwilling or unable to relocate the mine, and so his story ends there. Now we drift into the Lost Dutchman story, that of Jacob Valtz. Now, Jacob Valtz was a real person. He's documented. He's got history, which, Eric, you can be proud of me. I delved into the history I'm of Jacob so Valtz. I'm so proud of you. Because, you know, if he's a real guy, I needed to know. I wanted to know. So Jacob Valtz immigrated to the U.S. from Germany. He was born September 1810 in Wurttemberg. He relocated to Arizona in the 1860s, and he was there for most of the rest of his life. Now, Jacob did engage in mining and prospecting, but he never seemed to have a lot of luck at, at either of those trades. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people moved out that way to find their fortune in gold and just never thousands did. Thousands and thousands, yep. Now, the stories claim that he did eventually find the lost mine after rescuing a member of the Peralta family. Uh, and he was allegedly rewarded by being told where to find the mine. And there are documented accounts that he did periodically appear with large amounts of gold with no real like, hey, this is where I found it. But he would appear with large amounts of gold. And there is documentation to support that Jacob did sell $25,000 worth of gold in his lifetime to the U.S. Mint. That's a chunk. That's a lot of gold, especially in those in, that, you know, those days, especially. Yeah. And it was estimated he had $1,500 worth of gold on him when he died in 1891. So that's still a good chunk of change. So in 1870, Vaults had a homestead. It was about 160 acres near where Phoenix is. And during a disastrous flood in 1891, the Waltz farm was devastated. So he just kind of lost everything. Now, not long after that, he became deathly ill and rumored to be due to pneumonia that he contracted during the flood. He died on October 25th of 1891. Now, while on his deathbed, he was tended to by an acquaintance by the name of Julia Thomas. And it is believed that he told Thomas the location of his long lost gold mine. Now, as early as September 1st of 1892, so not even a year later, there are reports of Thomas going out attempting to locate this lost mine. And in a book about the, the story, John D. Wilburn wrote that the bulldog mine near Goldfield, Arizona, uh, seems to match best the description that Jacob gave as the location of his lost mine. Now, the story continues on sometime later. 
of soldiers finding a lost gold vein in the region. That two or more U.S. Army soldiers discovered this, this vein of almost pure gold in or near the Superstition Mountains. And they are said to have shown off some of their gold, but they were killed or vanished soon after. And the story of the Lost Dutchman's Mine might have been lost to time after the soldier story. And mind you, these are all different stories that kind of come together in one big conglomeration. In the area, some people hear the story, the soldier story. Some hear the Peralta story. Some hear the vault story. I'm more familiar with the Peralta. But they all kind of come together, and, and I sort of made them a narrative here, kind of piecing them all together. Again, like I said, the story of the Lost Dutchman's Mine might have been lost forever if not for the story of Adolf Ruth, amateur explorer and treasure hunter. Now, Ruth's story falls in line with some of the earlier stories, uh, with Erwin C. Ruth, Adolf's son, allegedly learning of the Peralta Mine from a man named Pedro Gonzalez. After helping the man with some legal complications sometime around 1912, which saved Gonzalez from almost certain imprisonment. I guess uh, Ruth was, was a lawyer or in the legal field. Now, as thanks, Gonzalez told Irwin about the Peralta Mine in the Superstition Mountains, and he claimed himself to be descended from the Peralta family on his mother's side. Now, Irwin passed this information on to his father, who also had a fascination with mines and amateur treasure hunting. And so in June of 1931, Ruth set out to find the Lost Peralta Mine. Now, Ruth stayed several days at the ranch of Tex Barkley during his travels, and Barkley urged Ruth multiple times to abandon his search, since the Superstition Mountains were treacherous even for experienced outdoorsmen. And of course, you do have all the folklore and the superstition that go with it, like we talked about earlier. Now, this, like, like I said, it would be dangerous even for an experienced outdoorsman, let alone for 66-year-old Ruth in the heat of the desert, you know, summer. Not in his prime. Now, Ruth ignored the advice and set out to find the mine. When he did not return as scheduled and no trace of him was ever found after a brief search, you know, they, they knew that he had just disappeared into the desert. In December 1931, a human skull with two bullet holes in it was found. That doesn't sound uh, strange yeah. at all. Uh, the skull was examined by a well-respected anthropologist in the region who was given several photos of Ruth as well as his dental records, and the expert was able to successfully identify the skull as belonging to Ruth. He stated the two bullet holes appeared to have been made at almost point-blank range. Oh, in January of 1932, human remains were discovered about three-quarters of a mile from where the skull was found. Even though the remains were scattered by scavengers, they were positively identified with many of Ruth's personal effects found at the scene, including a fully loaded pistol, no shots missing, that he didn't get a chance to fire, as well as the metal pins that had been used to mend some broken bones that he'd, he'd suffered a, a broken leg in a fall some years before this expedition. And so they were able to, to say you know, conclusively that these were his remains. Now, his search was not the last search for the Lost Dutchman's Mine, and nor would his death be the last associated with the mine. Some searchers have disappeared, likely due to accidents, but many more are found, with a lot of them having indications of foul play. Now, let me ask you, the, the property, the location of where this is said to believe, the Superstition Mountain, Superstition Mountain Range, is that like Native American public government land? Is it private property? You know, I didn't look into that, so I can't answer that. So are these people like maybe trespassing if it's close it to be. Indian territory? And that, is, that is the suspected you know, cause for some of this, but I, I hate to go that way with that, uh, what's happened to some of these people. I don't want to immediately right. be like, oh, the savage Indian killed him. Right, right. No, understandable. So in 1881, a, a prospector by the name of Joe Deering had heard the stories of the dead soldier's gold, and he began looking for the mine. And he returned from the mountains claiming to have found the mine, saying it was in the most god-awful rough place you could imagine. Which so, could explain a yeah, lot. The idea of just getting to the mine was dangerous. 
Later on, he did go to work at the Silver King mine just to make a few dollars, where he would die of a cave-in just a week later without ever revealing the location of the mine. (laughs) He didn't even get to go back. In 1910, the skeleton of a woman was found in a cave high up on Superstition Mountain with several gold nuggets found on the body. So again, they don't take the nuggets, whatever happened. Could have been accidental death, I guess, though. Could be. January 1933, a mining electrician named J.A. Tex Bradford went on a search for the mine, and by October, it was determined he had been missing for nine months. In 1937, an old prospector named Guy Hematite Frank, which I do like the hematite stone. I find it oddly beautiful. I, I like that name there. He returned from the mountains with several rich gold samples. Uh, In November of that same year, he was found shot in the stomach on the side of a trail near Labarge Canyon. Next to his body, a small bag of gold. Oh, it's greed, but not greed. Yeah. In the 1945 Thunder God's Gold book, author John Griffith Clemenson claimed he narrowly escaped getting killed by a mysterious sniper while searching for the gold. July 3rd, 1947, James A. Cravey, A retired photographer was reported missing after chartering a helicopter on June 19, 1947 to drop him into the Superstition Mountains to look for the mine. Cravey told everyone he'd be back on June 28. Later, his headless remains were discovered in the mountains, wrapped in a blanket with his skull sitting 30 feet away. (sighs) February 1951, Dr. John Burns was found shot to death in the Superstition Mountains. Early 1952, Joseph Kelly of Dayton, Ohio, went searching for the mine. He vanished and his skeleton was found near Weaver's Needle two years later, a bullet hole in the skull. Sounds like somebody is either found it and protecting it or they're yeah. also looking and they don't want anybody getting close. January 1956, a man from Brooklyn was reported missing by his brother. And while he was believed to have been searching for the mine at the time, his body was found with a bullet hole above his right temple a month later. In late 2009, Jesse Capen went missing in the Tonto National Forest. His, his campsite and car were found to be abandoned shortly after he had left, and he was known to have been obsessed with finding the mine and had made several trips to the area to find it. Capon's body was found in November of 2012 wedged into a crevice, and that is only a handful. There is a huge list of people who have never come back from the Superstition Mountains. And a lot of times, the medical examiners who look at these bodies will say, self-inflicted. People have been found with gunshot wounds in the back of the skull, Two shots in the skull? Yeah, no. Um, Shots from long range, shots from point blank range. And again, people, I mean, 9,000 people a year supposedly go out looking for this. And I guess this is just a small selection. I could have probably filled a whole episode just reading off the list of people who have died in the Superstition Mountains. And that doesn't account the people who are just looking for the mine. Like, people die in the Superstition Mountains yeah, uh, because they're brutal territory. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's got a uh, horror story of its own right there. Now, one of the stories I heard, and we kind of talked about that a little earlier, is that is, it is being protected by the natives of the region or potentially some sort of secretive organization that knows about the location of the gold and doesn't want anyone else to have access to it, which kind of goes with the undisclosed sniper story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to this day... I know early on you were saying like the uh, Native Americans and the guy rescued the chief yeah. or whatever, blindfolded, took them there, take all you all you can carry basically, and then blindfolded him again, took him out. And I mean, let's face it, uh, especially the poor Native American Indians, white people came over and took everything from them. Well, you, and that's sort you, of why I'm... I'm they kind of got the right to defend a little bit of I'm, theirs. I'm, I'm sorry. hesitant to say that like, oh, the natives of the region are killing people because right. that doesn't... Yeah, you know that's unfounded but, uh, proof. It could just be just absolute greed. Somebody might know where that place is and just protects it for all they're worth. 
some rich family out there that we don't really know how they got their wealth because let's face it, there's a bunch of people like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got one here that literally conspiracy theory blended with union gold. This story has a little bit of it all. Imagine 52 blocks of solid gold, each weighing approximately 50 pounds each. That's been buried and lost in Elk County, Pennsylvania. It's known commonly as the lost gold of the Civil War Union soldiers. Now, the story goes, in 1863, a wagon train left Wheeling, West Virginia, up towards the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. In the secret wagon train were 52 blocks of gold, equating to about 50 million in today's currency. Now, the last time any of the Union soldiers were seen or heard from was up near the Allegheny National Forest in a small town of St. Mary's. Now, again, this is well documented. It, you can find it in Civil War history books. This was the Union trying to get their gold further up north with the fear that Confederate soldiers were right on their heels and they were trying to win the, you know, win the battle, all this, and they needed this gold. So this is documented that this occurred. Now, the reports were the wagon train was seen there, as well as some of the soldiers that were sharing with close friends that they had been on a secret mission in transporting of Union gold. Now, you think, you know, if you're on a secret mission, that's probably the worst thing you could possibly do is say, hey, I've been on a secret <laughs> mission. Hey, I had a whole bunch of gold, you know, but. Loose lips sink ships, Loose lips sink ships, yes. That's why, that's why so many conspiracy theories are so hard to believe. Yeah. Now, a short time after, several of the soldiers' bodies were discovered in some of a uh, sort of a tragic accident or quite possibly, most likely, foul play, depending on who you talk to. But there was no sign of the gold, and the wagons that were found there near the bodies were all emptied. It is said only three soldiers were said to have survived that battle, occurrence, accident, attack, whatever you want to believe. Now, they came crawling out of the woods, battle bruised, and they sought refuge and help with the locals. They also shared some more of the story of what occurred over those couple nights. Now, they stated they were, were indeed being followed with what they believed were Confederate soldiers or bandits. It was probably one of those deals where they weren't close enough and they didn't want to slow down enough to take a real peek, you know, but they thought it was Confederate soldiers, said it could have just been bandits. They had been under attack several times throughout many evenings just kind of like knocking a few of the soldiers off kind of as they went, weakening their forces. Now, the order was finally given in fear that they might lose the gold to unload it and hide the treasure somewhere there in the Pennsylvania mountains, in which they said they did very quickly and quietly under nightfall. They then led the bandits away from that site, which a chase ensued. More of them were killed, but these three managed to barely escape with their lives. And as they fled, the bandits took over the wagons and, you know, began to search them, which provided these three soldiers with just enough of a distraction and a window of opportunity to slip out through the woods. Now, legend has it that the seven skeletal remains of the Union soldiers and the wagon trains were in fact found and recovered near what is known as Bell's Draft near Hicks Run, Pennsylvania. Three blocks of gold were found around the turn of the century in that area. Again, the people that found them, 
they weren't saying where exactly <laughs> they found them. Can't blame them. But it is documented three blocks were found that was reported. Could there have been more that wasn't reported? Very possible. But we know at least three. Then again, in 1990, a man by the name of Jack Shaw was working, staking off some property in the same area of these Pennsylvania mountains. Now, from what I understood, he was like staking off property and land, working kind of for the government, you know, mapping out areas. Now, he said one night he was at a local tavern there in town where he met and was drinking with a local man. He said after earning some trust between the two men over a period of several evenings while he was there working, he just kind of commonly went to this bar in a small town. The man told Jack Shaw he had found another block of the Civil War gold in the same area Shaw had been working that day. So obviously that sparked a little interest, and Shaw became interested in the story. Now, Jack was reluctant to believe him. He, he did say the man, who he did not name, told him, no, seriously, it's true. He goes, I sleep with this block under my bed every night, possibly because Jack didn't pry any further and just kind of blew the story off, or for reasons unknown, the man freely came the next night and showed Jack Shaw a block of gold from a bag that he brought with him from beneath the table to the tavern. Now, Jack stated, I I saw it in person. He goes, I even held it. He goes, I felt its massive weight. Obviously, gold has a different weight, a different feel. You know, it wasn't like a a steel block painted gold. He goes, "It, it was it seemed legit. The unknown man would not tell, you know, where he found it, obviously, claiming only he believed there was a lot more there and that he had planned to go and seek that out the that following warmer season. Now, many people just chalk this up to another crazy wild story with little or no merit. But this is where this particular story takes a true life on of its own. Now, just a few years back, a group of treasure hunters by the name of Finders Keepers, had been studying this story for years, possibly even decades. They had gained permission to metal detect in a specific area of the property. Now, the group pulled together their resources and money and were able to bring in some quite sophisticated, high-tech, ground-penetrating radar and metal detection equipment. They found several hot spots that they called, which relayed that gold was buried at various depths. But on One in particular spot, they found a large metal rectangle shape they believed to be a treasure chest. The typical size and dimensions, they said, of a Civil War metal chest correct for that era. They were also able to use the high-tech equipment to determine that this metal box had a gold signature from within it, inside that metal box. Now, the treasure hunter group uh, did not have permission to dig, only to metal detect and to use the ground-penetrating radar. But they followed all the protocols, all the local registrations and law, and reported their findings immediately, hoping to gain that permission to dig. This is when the FBI got involved. Now, this may seem weird, but it was explained to the Treasure Hunter Group if there was Civil War Union gold there, they needed to be present, because technically, such gold was the property of the United States government. So it still it doesn't fall under the finders keepers law. Apparently not, even <laughs> though they named their group that. Yes. Things get a bit distracted and blurred here. As members of the treasure hunter group stated, the FBI told them 
that they would, however, give full credit, where credit was due, of them being the finders, if they truly found anything, and the particular treasure, part of it would go to the group. However, what happened next may not surprise you. The FBI did go with Treasure Hunter Group a little reluctantly. They, didn't, they weren't firm believers to begin with, but observed their techniques. They went up, they, they showed with their ground-penetrating radar, their metal detectors, showed the points, they staked them out. The FBI was there to witness them, said, it looks legit. Okay, we're starting to be believers. Uh, they documented all these locations, telling the Treasure Hunter Group, you know, look, to get the next permits to be able to dig, we have to, we can't just dig up the whole mountain. We've got to pinpoint these locations with your help, and then we will present this information and then be able to properly gain the permission to dig only in these specific spots. Treasure Hunter Group was kind of at the mercy of the law, but at this point in time, they're like, okay, this makes sense. We're, we're following along. Now, on March 13th of 2018, Dennis and Kim Parada did in fact meet the FBI on Dents Run Road in Elk County, Pennsylvania in a follow-up, believed to be the sharing of a lifetime experience that they had been working for. And that would be, of course, digging up the treasure. However, they were stopped in their tracks. The FBI had taped off the area and had armed military guards patrolling the entire surroundings. Already backhoes and digging equipment had been brought in in the dead of night, and there were even signs that lights had been set up for digging at nighttime. The Paradas were members of the Finders Keepers Treasure Hunter Group, and it was essential due to their due diligence for finding the suspected gold treasure. Now, the FBI told them they could not now participate, so things had changed. <laughs> Imagine that. And they needed to remain in their car at a safe distance, their words used, behind the taped-off areas where they really couldn't see anything but could hear the digging already with the heavy machinery. I can't imagine how this would feel. I mean, that would well, drive me nuts. It's immediately obvious that the FBI believes there's something there. Yeah, they become believers. And they're going to take it, and those people are just SOL. Yeah, yeah. So they said, now look, you know, stay here in the car, do as we say, and we'll come and get you if and when we find something. Well, about 3 o'clock that afternoon, FBI members come to the car and said they, you know, the Paradas are saying they approached the car and told them they could come on up and see the progress that they had made in the dig. And they eagerly joined the group of armed military soldiers which escorted them up with a handful of FBI to the exact location they had pinpointed with the metal chest shaped beneath the earth. Now, again, this was 3 p.m. There was still plenty of sunlight and daylight hours for the day to continue to dig. However, the FBI said, we're about three foot shy of, of hitting the, you know, the, the designated dig spot, but we're going to call it a day at three o'clock in the afternoon. They thought this was a little strange, but again, they're trying to play under the heavy hand of the FBI and the government according to the rules and, and be as best behaved as they can, still hoping, grasping at straws, that this may turn out for the good, you know, for everybody. You know, they later learned, well, they were first escorted off the mountain at three o'clock or shortly thereafter, and the FBI said, we will be leaving. <laughs> they didn't get a chance to see. 
The FBI didn't leave. Right? The FBI didn't leave. But the Paradas didn't know this for several weeks. That's when locals finally came forward to them and said, yeah, you know, they dug all night long. There was helicopters flying over. They had spotlights out. They had lights up. And the digging never stopped all night long. They didn't know that for several weeks. So the Paradas were told to come back the next morning. And again, they would start the dig, go down to that extra three foot. And, you know, they would surely be a part of this historical outcome. So the FBI shows up once again, meets them in their car. They continue to dig for a little while, telling them to stay in their car. They'll come and get him. So at about 8 a.m., they were joined once again by the FBI, said, hey, guys, come on up. We're going to show you. And said the demeanor had changed. You know, just come on up. You can see what we found. You know, just kind of, meh, lost interest. And the FBI showed up, took them up there, and showed a very deep hole. Now, again, these people had been documenting the area. They'd have been told there was three foot within it. They said the hole had increased by three times the diameter. They had dug way deeper than any three foot more. And they had also dug up some of the other hot spots as well. And the FBI said, I don't know how to tell you this, but, you know, all that fancy equipment must have been glitched. Huh. because we didn't find anything. And they just kind of, you know, looked at each other. What, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? Uh, the whole thing must have just been a glitch, you know. And the Pradas were understandably not so convinced. Uh, they said the FBI and the soldiers and the digging equipment all left that afternoon. Uh, they backfilled all the holes, flattened out everything, you know, tidied up, if you will. And Dennis Prada that night decided, you know, I've, I feel like I've been lied to. I feel like I've, I've had enough. So he sneaks back up on the mountain, along with a couple other members of the treasure hunting group, with some of that same identical equipment. And they went out to find those same pinpointed areas. There was no register of any metal, not just the gold missing. Well, that's because they glitched out the first time, Eric. All, yeah. <laughs> and the second time when they showed the, the FBI. Time, yeah. There was Third nothing. Third time's the charm. Third time's the charm. There was nothing on any of the penetrating ground radar, which shows like shadow x-ray imaging, metal detecting. So we got two totally different types of technology. <laughs> they both apparently glitched out. Nothing to be seen. Nothing to be had. They said the FBI tape was eerily kind of the only thing that was left uh, still around some of the trees and all of this. They fully believe the FBI swooped in and took the Union gold from them. And, of course, the FBI did come forward. They made a formal announcement that it was basically a total waste of resources and time. Nothing had been found nor taken, and they remained by that story. That, that sounds shady. Shady as beep. <laughs> so as I was looking up lost treasures on the Internet, found some links to, to, to articles about Blackbeard's lost treasure. Oh, Blackbeard. And it kind of reminded me that my, my grandmother at some point she had gotten her hands on a, an item that was, it was like a vintage, it was made like a, it to be a vintage pirate treasure map. And it had like the whole East Coast and where all the different pirate wrecks were supposed to be. Cool. Nice. I think even like maybe Oak Island and stuff was on there. You and, know, I uh, love my Oak Island. But the other thing is, I don't know if you have watched it or not. Uh, my family has been watching Our Flag Means Death. Hmm. It's a comedy, kind of a romance comedy show on Max and it's about Blackbeard. And I found out that it's based a little more on reality than I thought. 
Um, because in, in some of the reading I did, I read that, that Blackbeard, who was known as Ed, who, whose real name was Ed Teach, had taken under his wing a, a young man by the name of Steed Bonnet. And Steed is the other main character in Our Flag Means Death. Gotcha. Because he knew the region and he could help Blackbeard, you know, sell in and out of these different places because Steed knew the coast better. And Steed was kind of a gentleman pirate. So I, I, I learned a few things doing this. But anyway, if you, if you haven't seen Our Flag Means Death, I think it's really funny. Uh, my family enjoys it. But it's just, you know, when I stumbled across the, the story of Blackbeard's treasure, I decided, well, that, that's, I, I like pirates and stuff. That, that kind of stuff's neat. Very fitting. Along the Chesapeake Bay Beach, where what is now called First Landing State Park, there's a place where the sand dunes kind of sit between the incoming tide and an area of cypress trees. And from the trees, it offers an unobstructed view of the bay. And this made a useful blackout for Captain Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard. Now, for those of you that maybe don't know the story, you know, of course, Blackbeard was a savage pirate with a huge reputation for just being bloodthirsty and just plundering, you know, taking ships. He would tie cannon fuses into his beard and light them as he came out on <laughs> Intimidation deck. Intimidation factor would, yeah, dialed he just, up. He, he would just come out with this smoke billowing around him. He was quite the character. And he was just supposed to be a very bloodthirsty pirate. Teach would station his men at Cape Henry. And when his crew would see the ship, they would signal to Teach and notify him of the ship's direction, which, which way it was coming from. And this allowed Teach to know whether the ship was worth plundering or not. Ships coming from the east were typically merchant ships, while ships coming from the west were often Royal Navy. You're going to plunder the merchants, and you're going to avoid the Royal Navy. So one day, as the pirates were enjoying some downtime, the signal came to teach, Blackbeard indicating a merchant ship was approaching. Now, the ship sprang into action, chasing the merchant vessel, and it caught them easily due to the ship's hold being filled with heavy boxes of treasure. After seizing the ship, cannon fire in the distance alerted Blackbeard to two naval vessels which were quickly approaching. Now, without much time, Blackbeard buried his treasure in the sand dunes on the beach there and then set sail for his hideout located in North Carolina. Now, Teach had always intended to return to reclaim the, his gold when, the, when you know, they were clear of the warships, but that was not going to happen this time. The Navy ships caught up to Teach in the Outer Banks, and in a bloody battle, Blackbeard would be beheaded at the hands of Lieutenant Robert Maynard. Now, as soon as Ed Teach was killed, the search for his gold was on. You know, this, this this little stash that he had buried in the dunes was just one part of what was they supposed to be a vast horde. Now, as to where the rest of Blackbeard's spoils were, Maynard posed that question to Blackbeard's crew. So, where'd the boss hide his treasure? The response was, funny you should ask, we posed that question to him just last night. Even his crew didn't know where it was, supposedly. Now, another version of the story says that Blackbeard told his men when they asked, nobody but myself and the devil know where it is. And whoever lives longest should take it all. That's a little more intimidating. Yep. yep. Very teach style. After Blackbeard's death, there was no loot to be found on board any of his ships. And, you know, uh, to anyone who knows their history, Queen, Anne, Queen Anne's Revenge, Revenge. was his, his flagship. No, no gold. No gold on board Queen Anne's Revenge when it was taken down. Now, many have tried to find the lost treasure of Blackbeard, but not even to this day has any of it actually been found. Legend tells that while Blackbeard died in North Carolina, his spirit returned to that beach in Virginia to protect the gold that was buried there. That is such a well-known story. There's actually a storyline of the Hellboy comic books that involves Blackbeard and his ghost protecting that gold and Hellboy getting caught up dealing with Blackbeard's ghost. Huh. I mean, it's a well-known story. Now, other locations for Blackbeard's possible you know, treasure hoard 
include the Beaufort Inlet, which is where the wreckage of the Queen Anne's Revenge was discovered in 1996. Now, hundreds, if not thousands of articles were already found there, different artifacts, including, you know, the cannons from the Queen Anne's Revenge and other items that, that survived the time, and, and even a small amount of gold dust in that area, but not the heaping treasure hoard that treasure hunters are looking for. And again, gold dust, I mean, you can find gold dust just about anywhere. Sure, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Ocracoke Island is another place where Blackbeard did make camp for a while, and some believe that he had had plenty of time to unload his treasure there, but searching Ocracoke Island has failed to turn up anything. Now, Blackbeard was very active across the Caribbean, and it's entirely possible he could have hidden any amount of treasure anywhere in that region. And, of course, the Caribbean is made up of tons of little islands, or maybe he just sank it. Who knows? A lot of people think when you look for a treasure, you're going to find a treasure chest. It's not always the case with these pirate hordes. They didn't bury treasure chests, as it were, and they didn't X marks the spot on a map. You know, according to legend, Teach was the only one who knew where the treasure was buried. Which almost leads you to believe he would have either one had to do it all himself or kill the people kill the that uh, and that's a he, common story um was i believe in uh the the pirates of the caribbean that's part of the story is that yep is that teach had his pirate treasure buried and then shot the men who buried it so no one knew where it was taking it with them to their grave there's no known record of his his treasure's final resting place and no one knows where it could be it could be at any of these locations it could be at any of a dozen other different locations that blackbeard was known to be if found, it is estimated that Blackbeard's treasure trove could be valued at up to $12.5 million. Wow. There's also a version of this story that says that Blackbeard died without any treasure, that Blackbeard simply did it for the thrill of the hunt, and that he wasn't interested in material wealth. He kept enough gold to keep his, his crew happy and to keep his ships afloat and just either ditched or spent the rest. Well, again, you have to consider, you know, unlike like my story of Union Civil War gold, pirates treasure is whatever they could have gotten. I mean, it yeah. could be China. It could be gems, jewelry, coin. Well, anything uh, of value. Anything of value. Art. Paintings, art, yeah, books, uh, anything. And again, that's why I'm saying it, it's not, you know, it's not going to be found in the typical treasure chest necessarily. Yeah. It wasn't just stacks of gold coins they hoarded. It was just things of value. So, But yeah, as, as I was reading through that story and I stumbled upon the mention of Steed Bonnet, I did not realize that he was a real pirate. And of course, in the, well, in the show, Our Flag Means Death, Steed and Blackbeard are involved romantically, which apparently was very common among pirates at the time. But yeah, I didn't know he was a real character. I thought he was, you know, created for the show. It turns out he was a real pirate at the time. Huh. Well, back a few weeks ago on our episode number 132, uh, which was the Cicada 3301, I briefly mentioned the Beale Ciphers, which involved yet another American lost treasure. So I thought this is a quite fascinating story, and I felt one that we needed to pull in tonight's limelight since we're focusing on lost treasures of the United States. Thomas Jefferson Beale is a name you most likely have never heard of. But his name is synonymous with a 200-year-old lost treasure in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. He is credited as the author of what has been known now as the Beale Papers. Now, the Beale Papers consist of three different book ciphers. Now, in our Cicada 3301, we went down into some deep rabbit holes of <laughs> all types of riddles and ciphers and all this. But this was just the book cipher. 
it consists of three different ones. And the first would be, what is the treasure? The second is, where is the treasure? And the third is, who is entitled to that treasure? So a little, a little different. Now, the ciphers have never been fully decoded, but the lost treasure is worth today about $32 million in today's standards. So that's 32 million good reasons to keep this one alive and going. Now, the first cipher has been decoded, telling us what the treasure consists of and using the Declaration of Independence as the book or publication. Hey, hey Eric, that's a movie. That's not a real thing. I'm going to get to that. (laughs) Some of you may not have caught that episode on Cicada 3301. So just kind of clarify real quickly. A book cipher commonly uses some popular publication of the day of the time that is hoped to believe to be popular enough to be available 50, 100, 200 plus years down the road. The Declaration of Independence surely flips, you know, that it fits that bill. Well, most of us have a great deal of exposure to it just going through school. So, yes. Now, for example, again, I'm not going to get into all the details. If you want to know more, you can go back and we invite you to listen to that. But how this vaguely would work, the book cipher is a, is a bout of numbers. These numbers you would have to tie to some publication. And it's not, it doesn't clearly say, reference the Declaration of Independence. You've got to figure that out. But once you do, it might include a, a first number might be the page number or a chapter, or and the third number might then be the number of words on that page. Then, crafty little people would have to figure out, is that word's identification of a letter the first character of the word, the last character of the word, the third character of the word? But whenever you figured that out, it would always be the same. So once you cracked it and you had the document, it would always be like the first letter of the word, the second or, you know, the last letter of the word or whatever. So that's how that works. Now, some of you may be thinking, man, this, this sounds familiar to Bill's point. Well, it should. The movie National Treasure <laughs> was literally loosely based on the system of ciphers and this exact story. Now, if you might remember, Nicolas Cage's character and his company had to go steal the Declaration of Independence. And the movie version, there was, however, hidden text almost done in invisible ink on the original Declaration of Independence. In my story, to have one of the, you know, the cheap tourist copies from the shop would have been sufficed because you're just looking for the words and the letter. But enough of all that. It's time to tell the real story of Thomas Jefferson Beale, the man you never knew. He fled his West Virginia home for New Orleans after a duel, which ensued because Mr. Thomas Jefferson Beale was quite the ladies' man. He'd gotten fresh on another man's younger niece, a woman by the name of Julia Hancock Clark, who would become the wife of explorer William Clark, none other than the famous Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, the duel wasn't with William. He was actually out on an expedition at the time. So the uncle of the niece defended her honor uh, with her husband away, William, and Beale accepted this offer. And again, this is one of those old-fashioned duel at so many paces and, you know, all this. 
Well, Beale shot and believed he killed Uncle Clark. However, the man did actually survive. Still, Thomas Jefferson Beale was no dummy, and he believed he had gunned down, even rightly so, a formidable duel, a legal duel for the time, one of this distinguished family's members, and he brought with him, he believed, the wrath of hell upon himself. So he chose New Orleans because of stories of fame and fortune that awaited men there. He had been told these stories firsthand by none other than Aaron Burr, businessman, politician, and third U.S. vice president of Thomas Jefferson from 1801 to 1805. Now, arriving in New Orleans, Thomas Jefferson Beale, however, never looked back. He met and married the daughter of the governor of western Florida. Beale found New Orleans quite to his liking. He soon found himself not only participating, but also owning and operating several gambling casinos and very lucrative businesses uh, there of his own. This, however, did not come without a cost. Beale had left his own very well business family in Virginia, very well off, where he had been deemed the black sheep of the family for his actions and considered somewhat of a coward for running and all but entirely cut out of his father's will at the time of his death. Beale's father's estate in Virginia was one of the wealthiest in the entire area, so Beale did not grow up poor. He was already born into a business family, a well-distinguished family himself. However, he was only left five shillings, equal to that to about one week's of wages of a carpenter at the time, and it was considered kind of a backhand from his father in his last dying will and testament. Now, he earned quite a name for himself there in New Orleans, even to a point that Andrew Jackson and associates approached him and fought alongside him in the Battle of New Orleans. Now, Beale led the Beale Rifleman Militia, who played a vital role in history in the area at the time, making him also a war hero on top of all of his other accolades. However, there was a lot going on in New Orleans during this time frame. So a lot of that history is not as easy to come up with as one might think. Just a few of the other things that were going on in this time frame. Marie Laveau was just starting her family and the religious followings. Number two, the pirate John Lafitte and his brother were most likely drinking at one of Beale's drinking halls as they also shared and fought with him uh, during some of the battles of uh, New Orleans there. And of course, if you did not know, the pirate John Lafitte had quite the pirating career up and down the coast in the area. Also, thirdly, another little mention of Madame Lalaurie was hosting lavish dinner parties to guests unbeknownst to the torturing and slaughter of black slaves in the attic overhead. Now, Thomas Jefferson Beale died in September of 1820, but his legacy didn't stop there. It was later in years when three ciphers would be found written by Beale in none other than Bedford, Virginia, pretty close to his family's original establishment, where he had left them. Now, he had left these writings, these ciphers, with a man at an inn. They were wealthy friends, uh, and Beale and some of his other wealthier friends traveled through on several occasions to this inn, and this particular innkeeper was a man by the name of Robert Morse of Lynchburg, Virginia. 
and his establishment of what was known and well-published the Washington Hotel, which was relayed through a man by the name of James Ward in later years. So the story kind of trickled down. Now the story goes that on one of many visits to the area, Thomas Jefferson Beale would come and stay with Robert Morse there at his boarding inn for many, many months at a time, often through like the entire winter and then leave that spring. He is said to almost have always traveled with a handful of other wealthy businessmen and friends, most likely from the Richmond, Virginia area. They would arrive all together. They would all stay a few days. Beale would go ahead and stay on for several months. The other gentleman would return home. And then Beale, when spring would get here, the same gentleman would show up, stay a few nights, and then they would leave together. So a little, a little strange, I felt. After several long month stays, the men would uh, become basically very active friends. And I'm talking about Robert Morse owning the, the inn and Beale himself. They would write each other back and forth and kind of share information. And, you know, Beale decided over and over to stay for whatever reason at that precise location with that man. Now, Morse described his friend Beale as a handsome and well-admired man to the ladies in particular. He said he had jet black eyes and hair to match. Said he stood just over six foot tall, very well-mannered, very well-liked and admired even by the men of the era. They looked up to him, said he was a, you know, a real man's man. He stated he always arrived with dark skin, a dark complexion, like that of someone who had spent a lot of time outside in the sun, which seemed to even add more to his distinguished good looks. He stated he was a, a man in well shape, uh, you know, a manly man with just slightly longer hair than was most accustomed to. That was the only thing that really made him stand out in a crowd. He got along well with all, unless a man was to cross him. And said he then said, woe to that person as he would find himself on the wrong end of Beale. Now, Beale presented his friend Robert Morse with a locked metal box in the spring of 1822. The last correspondence Morris had with Beale was a letter from St. Louis, Missouri, in his own hand, and he referred back to this box that he had previously left him. And he stated in the letter, If you do not hear from me within ten years, then this box is yours, and the contents of its most valuable papers I wish to go to you. And Morse says, I am making you the rightful owner. Ten years. That would be quite a time. Now, after the passing of Beale, 10 years came and gone. Robert Morse relayed the story to a friend, this James Ward, who then we now credit with being able to pass down the story, actually forgot the box. <laughs> he said it was dust covered on the back of a shelf, that I'd put it back there to keep safe, surely that my friend would come and reclaim it. So instead of 10 years, he said it was actually closer to 23 years past his death. and. He was sitting around talking with this James Ward, and it kind of jogged his memory, and he said, matter of fact, he left a locked chest back here. Let's go back and take a look at it. <laughs> this was the time frame of 1845, so pre-Civil War. Now, Ward wrote upon Morse, opening the box, that he found only a handful of letters and receipts, along with some very cryptic pages and a lot of numbers and symbols that meant absolutely nothing to either of them. Now, according to the letter he received from Beale, these papers supposedly contained all he would ever need to find a great treasure. And he stated, 
Should you take the time and look and seek out the treasure to receive it, you will be amply rewarded for such duties. All of your work will be worth it, and I sincerely hope you will be successful to follow through with this task, for it would bring me great happiness to bestow such a gift to such a great friend. Now, since the papers were full of riddles and numbers and symbols, the innkeeper, Robert Morse, nor James Ward were able to decipher or pursue or understand any of them, not for lack of trying. It was for this reason Ward decided to publish the Beale Papers. It was a small pamphlet, a booklet that he printed and sold for 15 cents at the time. This was, again, just before the Civil War. And that brought Morrison himself a small amount of money for this strange and secret gift that was so misunderstood. Now, treasure hunters have never stopped looking for the Beale treasure, for this is one that seems, honestly, to be very plausible. A wealthy businessman, family's son, fled for his life, started again with nothing, built his own empire, had access to great wealth, traveling obviously abroad, documented to Colorado, mentions of writing from St. Louis, Missouri, all the way back and forth to Virginia many times, with no real will and testament to be found upon his death. Where did all the money go? Why would he choose to return it back to his birthright state of Virginia after being scorned by his own family? Yet the letters were seen, and copies do exist of these letters. There are also a few original copies of the Beale paper pamphlets that were sold for 15 cents. Not to mention, the first cipher has already been solved using the Declaration of Independence. This, folks, is the stuff of legends. And you can certainly see why National Treasure, the movie, would gleam a bit of its glory from this original story. Now, I will say, you know, the independence, the Declaration of Independence, good choice, good choice. But with the time frame, pre-Civil War, you know, still Revolutionary War mindset, you would almost think it would have the other two books or pamphlets, writings would be something similar. You would think. You know, and I'm thinking the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Silence Do-Good Papers maybe, but maybe those would be a little bit too obscure. And of course, that's the ones that, uh, you know, John Adams Gates found in an antique desk. Well, there's that was, uh, one book, which is most never left publication since it first started to be printed. The Bible. So, yeah, that's a potential. So, I don't know. This, that one really struck me. And like I said, I kind of grazed upon it when we were talking about the Cicada episode. And I was like, man, I want to go back to that. And it just so turned out. It's like, here's my chance. I'm going to pull it back. So, Bill, is it headline time? Yeah, I got a, I got a good one. And it, it'll cast your mind back to the good old days of... Just last week. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days of just last week. From Kicker 102.5 by Mario Garcia, dated November 2nd, 2023. Go on a massive treasure hunt on an Arkansas lake being drained. Mm. Lake Conway. I do believe you've mentioned that on another episode. That. May have mentioned a monster. Lake Conway in Arkansas is being drained for much needed upgrades and improvement. And as the old saying goes, one man's trash is another man's, man's treasure. treasure. So according to the Arkansas Fishing Game Commission, this project is going to take about five years to complete. And in the meantime, officials are allowing the public to come and hunt for items where the water has been drained. 
Mm. in what is basically a treasure hunt for things that have been sitting at the bottom of the lake. Now, Got my interest peaked. Now, these, these items could have been down there for decades uh, and, and will be revealed as they drain the lake. However, anyone who wants to take part will need a treasure hunting permit issued by the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. This permit was created because of the interest that was generated in this program and, and this, this, this endeavor, uh, which spawned a Facebook group with over 4,000 members. So <laughs> Arkansas knew they had something here, and, you know, so they're going to sell why these not, permits. Why not capitalize on it a little bit? Now, there's no telling what you might find during the slow draining of the lake, and pretty much anything you find you can keep as long as you have the permit. The only things you cannot take home are vegetation, dirt, and rocks that are native to the region. So, you know, yeah. anything man-made is pretty much up for grabs. Now, the AGFC says treasure hunting will only be allowed from sunrise to sunset, and you must have your permit on you at all times. Uh, so get your metal detectors ready and head to Lake Conway in Arkansas for a good old-fashioned treasure hunt, because you never know what you're going to find in a lake that's been, uh, been in that area for 75 years. Maybe it's and, just me, but seriously, that would be like, that's the stuff of dreams right there. Well, un- unless you find the monster. Well, yeah, find, that, <laughs> find the cave where the monster was at. Well, well yeah, that does sound really interesting. Oh, my gosh, that would be a blast. We went down to the, you know, the uh, crater mines, the diamond mines and all that. Oh, we went there a few years ago. And, you know, we never we no. never found anything major, but it was a lot of fun. I'm so well, glad we went, and I can say I participated it, in that. It seemed like every time I've heard of somebody going that doesn't find anything, like within a week. Oh, yeah, they'll find I, some I think monster diamond or when something. When we went, it was like, I want to say two to three weeks later, some kid found a a big four carat diamond or something. And I'm like, man, I was just there. I had that. It fell out of my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> I found some really neat rocks that I still have. But yep. And I, I will say I found a lot of quartz that I got really excited about at the time. You Dude, know, we went in August though. And you know, the, uh, oh, I put stuff in my hair to keep it slick back. Brutal I mean, heat. within 30 minutes, my, my hair was just running down in my face. Brutal oh, it was heat. Hot. We, we did the same thing, which was uh, foolish. You need think, to go about this time of year. I think we left a little bit early and went to some of the, the Native American uh, heritage stuff they have around there. There's yeah, a lot the of neat stuff in The town's got a area. lot of little neat museums and it's stuff. A, it's a neat little town to go to. Well, my headline is uh, taken from December 27th, 2021 out of the Smithsonian Magazine, a particular article. A treasure of a slightly different kind. Because, let's face it, I'm weird and I do things different. It's no secret that often movie props can be considered treasure, some even priceless, depending on the era and the popularity of the movie. Now, surely, one of the world's most beloved iconic movies might be a little ditty called The Wizard of Oz, starring Judy Garland. Now, like many movies of its time, it was unknown how well that movie would do, much less that it might have become so popular, uh, uh, literally one of the most popular movies of all time. Now, such was the case with The Wizard of Oz. So movie props, especially at that time, they weren't kept or collected. No. They were often just discarded as trash, forgotten, lost to time, or reused and reused and reused until they were worn out. Now, recently, or back about a decade ago, there was a story, which this is not about, but the Red Ruby Slippers. Uh, They were, of course, worn by Judy Garland and was elusive for many years, but they were finally discovered. However, a little less known treasure find was the blue and white dress worn by the actress Judy Garland during the film. And this is the one right there with the flying monkeys and the, the Wicked Witch of the West. 
And rumors have always abound around such movie relics, you know, but cold hard facts, documentation, especially at that time, it just didn't exist. There was, you know, it's, it's almost a needle in a haystack. There had been rumors circulating, however, for many years that this iconic blue and white dress had been spotted on stage in photographs, some even showing decades-old photos of family members wearing the dress. Still, there was no direct tie. Maybe it was a look-alike. Maybe, again, maybe it was a common dress they went and bought at Waldorf's or wherever, and there was thousands of them. You know, who, who's to say? That is until the 1939 dress showed up in a trash bag at the Catholic University of American in June 2021, confirming the long-standing rumors that Washington, D.C.'s School of Drama Department housed the iconic costume and used it for many years on various stage productions, which proves sometimes those rumors and old snapshots are fact-truth. They tracked this back with documentations of the Hollywood studio, a person acquiring it for their personal collection, then donating it to this college. Now, the dress went up for auction last year in 2022. I could not find where it actually sold, so if it sold, the prices often are kept kind of quiet. But it was an estimated value pre-auction of 800000 to $1.2 million, found in a trash bag, donated and thrown out. Treasures come in all aspects and sizes. I saw a headline just the other day that there's a prop house in England that's going to liquidate its inventory via auction, and it is uh, where they've been storing the props from aliens. Oh, they'll so bring they some money. Like some of the... The, uh, the old armors and like the replica pulse rifles and stuff like yep. that. Piece of the alien's tail, I think. Oh, and they've also got stuff from the original alien too. So, Well, and again, a lot of like the, the prosthetics and stuff like that used, it wasn't meant to last. So even if no. you do have it, a lot of times, I mean, it's like falling apart. Yoda, one of the hand puppets out of Star Wars, they found, I mean, you talk about creepy looking. His face had oh, concaved you, and like you seen, latex had melted. And, have you seen where they found the original puppet for Hoggle from Labyrinth? Yes. In a, like an airport didn't lost even, and found? Didn't even like recognize it. No, it was all rotted and grotesque. Yeah. So this will be right up your alley. I know. I, I have my answer already. But uh, some expedition or treasure hunt. You have a, an interesting story about one of your own experiences on something like that? Oh, where I was out trying to find treasure? Or something. Not necessarily treasure. My, mine's not a treasure hunt, but it's something along those lines. I think, uh, well, both Sarah and I, we love, we don't get time to do it, but we go out a lot with metal detectors. We'd like to go out more. Never really made any great finds, but my uncle, Floyd Chatham, rest his soul, lived down around Nebo Falcon area. And that man had to have been the luckiest man in the world. He went down and, and he would use his metal detector and he showed me some of the artifacts he would find, which as a child just fueled the passion. Walking Liberty coins, Civil War time frame, pistols, of course the wood's all rotted and everything, but that really sparked me. Now, as far as my own finding of anything, it's a little different. Another life of me that Bill may not even be that aware 
is I spent about 15 years of my life collecting a, an author by the name of Harold Bell Wright, who wrote- We talked about it. You published a book. I published a book back in like 2000, 2002. Of course, wrote Shepherd of the Hills, put Branson on the map, literally. I used to comb old bookstores, flea markets. I was lucky enough to find a very inexpensive, not a first edition, later book with an authentic photograph of Harold Bell Wright standing at Old Matt's cabin in Branson. A lot of people wouldn't have recognized him because I was such a devout (laughs) nut, and I literally have hundreds of photographs, 400 and some personal letters the man wrote. I identified him immediately. There were two other men that I identified. One of them, it took me a little longer. But it was his publisher of the book supply company, which published Shepherd of the Hills. And the other, I later found out, was the doctor in Pittsburgh, Kansas, that introduced them. Here's these three men standing (laughs) at Old Matt's cabin in Branson, Missouri. That's my best treasure find. And it was in Arkansas, uh, ironically. We were just down there going through a flea market, and I flipped through, and it's like, you know, sometimes they'll stick newspaper clippings. But this was glued in the backside of the book. And I mean, apparently maybe someone in the family was there and took the picture. It was, it was awesome for me. A lot of people would be like, ah, it's an old photo. Who cares? But to me, that was, that was gold. Mine's not about finding treasure, but it is an expedition gone wrong. (laughs) And it involves the word lost. I'll tell you that. (laughs) When we lived out in Dixon, we had decided one day, we'd all heard stories of a cave that was back in the woods, kind of where we were at. And we decided we were going to find it. So it was like me, my brother, my stepsister, the neighbor kid, his sister, and maybe my brother had a friend over, I want to say. There was a bunch of us. Or maybe it was like one of my stepbrothers. A mixture of Stranger Things and the Goonies. But we decided we were going to find this cave. And so we went out in the woods. And, you know, you still have pretty vivid memories of things as you get older sometimes. And I remember there was sort of a washout, like a stream bed where like when it rained real heavy, you know, it would run through. Mm-hmm. And we walked along that for a good long while, went way, 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 way back into these woods. And when we were coming back, I decided that I found the cutout in the, the, the shore, like the, the, the edge of this, you know, run out where like we could go up there and that was the way we needed to go back up. And then we would get back to where we were going. Gotcha. Well, I decided to keep following the, this little runoff, this little, you know, stream bed, whatever, and managed to get us lost <laughs> in the process. <laughs> And we finally, we come up on this gravel road and we did not know where we were. Like we were looking around and, and I was, I was in my teens. Like I had a car, like, you know, I wasn't a anybody old can enough get to lost. know better. Yeah. But, but I had all these kids with me and, and my brother's four years younger. And then it was his friend who was in the same grade and then his little sister. And then, so you were kind of the eldest. I of was the, the oldest. I should have known better. The leader of the pack. I might have, no, I, I take that back. I might have still been in high school, but it would have been like the very end of high school, like senior year. But, uh, so we come out on this gravel road. We don't know where we're at. So we start walking because we're like, well, if you follow the road far enough, That's where you put your cell phone out and you find out, use the oh, app. Oh yeah. Pre-cell phone. <laughs> so we start walking and, and we're walking past farms and stuff. We didn't bring any water. You know, we hadn't planned on being out. So we found like little trickling streams and we're like, well, we shouldn't do this, but you know, enough to wet the mouth a little. And then I'm like, oh, it tastes gross, you know. <laughs> Cow up on the top of the hill. Finally, this, this, <laughs> this woman in a minivan stops. And she's like, where are you kids, you know, from? And we're like, oh, by this, blah, blah, blah. Well, somehow, 
like she had got it in her head that she knew us because there was a family in the area whose last name was Cheryl. And she asked who my parents were. And I said, well, Cheryl and Frank. Well, she heard Cheryl and she thought that was the last name. Ah. So she thought she knew who we were. So she's like, well, I'll give you kids a ride home since you're way, way out from where you're, you know, she goes like, I didn't think you belonged to any of the houses. Daddy. Little did you know you're being abducted. Well, yeah, you know, you're not supposed to do that. But I figured with the number of people involved. Yeah. Like if this lady's going to abduct us, she's going to have a hell of a fight on her hand. <laughs> and so gave her directions. She got us home. And then we all coordinated our story, if you will, to where like for the neighbor kid, it was a friend of ours. And for my mom, it was a friend of theirs. And Get your story straight. But yeah, we, we thought we were going to go find this cave and just ended up horrifically lost. They so never the found the cave. Nope. Never go back and try to find it again? Not that, no. not. I mean, no, we went no, out in the woods no. plenty more times, but we never went that far again. And uh, turns out, like, I figured out where we were about halfway home. But we were, if we had have followed that road, we would have walked for hours before we got to a place that I knew, <laughs> let alone, you know. And once I figured out where we were, it would have been another two to three hours to get home. Oh, my. You guys we, took a little we track. We walked. And it's easy to get, you get out there, especially talking and enjoying the scenery and, you know, following it. And you just lose track of time, lose yeah. track of direction. It, it, it oh, happens. Oh, it was going on dark when we got back. And, and that was the other thing. Like, we all should have been inside home somewhere. <laughs> it was crazy. Lessons learned. Yeah. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed yet another example of our stories that we share with you, the listeners of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us, uh, if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever, whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition and gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. January 1956, a man from Brooklyn. It's known commonly as the Lost Go... So after Blackbird, Blackbirds, Blackbird, uh, a particular article, a, a particular Artle. article. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. But we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.